This is the Venturing Angler Podcast. I'm Tim Harden. In this episode, we'll chat with John Perry of Angler's Alibi in Alaska. John guides and operates Angler's Alibi in the Bristol Bay region, and we'll be chatting with John about fly fishing in the Bristol Bay area of Alaska. Let's chat with John. So we're here in Denver, Colorado at the Fly Fishing Show um, at the Merchandise Mart in Denver, and we're here with John Perry of Angler's Alibi in Alaska. Thanks for doing this, John. Oh, you're welcome. And so you're based in the Bristol Bay region of Alaska. Yeah, we're on the Alagnac River, about a 30-minute float plane ride from the town of King Salmon, which is kind of the one of the main hubs for the lodge industry in Alaska. That's great. So I've, I've um, over the years, been paying attention to... Um, your seasons, uh, there's a lot of great media and some great videos that have been coming out of uh, your lodge every year. And in fact, even just a few weeks ago, I was thinking, well, it's, the, the season's ended, I should be uh, expecting a new video soon, and sure enough, some you know great drone footage, bears, salmon, trout, you've got the whole sort of iconic um, Alaska fly fishing experience happening there, huh? Yeah, bl- very lucky to... Uh be where we are, but also have the staff that I, that I have that uh, is, are, that love to do the videos and love to take, you know, the best possible pictures they can take. And it's just kind of a it's kind of a game we all have is who, who can get the best pictures every season and who can capture the best footage. So it's it's really working out great for everybody. So your season, it, um, what period of time does that run through? So we run from basically the first week of July through the first week of September. And how are the species broken up during this period? And it's uh, it's kind of interesting how it works up there. The, the salmon all come in on different times for the most part. Uh, our season starts off with uh, sockeyes and kings and uh, the first week of the season. And as the second, second week of the season starts, we start getting inundated with the start of the first chum run, and which I love. And uh, so it gives us three species to target for... Uh, in that second week every year and um, as that goes into towards the end of July we get the uh, some silvers start showing up and by the first week of August we have silvers on the menu um, so there's a lot of overlap but it starts off sockeyes kings chums and then silvers for the most part that's great and, and so are the chums your favorite chums are they're not my favorite but they're close second what's your favorite the silvers. Silvers. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've noticed uh, that you, you get these great runs. Or they look chrome. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, I think, at least in my opinion, as they've been in the system, they just get these gorgeous colors. And they've got that. Mm-hmm. The males have that great mouth. And, mm-hmm. um, and you've, of course, your region's known for its abundance of trout. Um, and so those are pretty much feasting on the sockeye that come in. Right. Yeah, they, the, there's so much food. The biomass of, of salmon that come up our river system every year is mind-boggling. And you could, I think that even though we have more trout that I ever could imagine could be that could fit into a river system, I'm, I, I think it could handle even more because of the amount of salmon that are coming up that wow. river. Uh, the, the runs have been... They stopped counting last year in our river at 2.8 million sockeye wow. 
when the, they took the tower down, Fish and Game took the tower down at about the end of our third week of the season, they continued on daily in hordes for at least another week and a half. So I think we're, we were close to 3.8 million sockeye in our river system last year. And this is really... Alone? That's amazing. This yeah. is the this is the sockeye run in the world. This is yeah. what, what, you know, you can almost expect that when you see these images of the water and it looks like it's red. Right. Um, with the numbers of fish. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bristol Bay region is sort of known for that. And, right. Um, there's a connection to sockeye as a species for that region that I think very few other places have. Yeah, it, it's definitely, it benefits, uh, it benefits both the sport, sportsmen and the commercial fishermen. It's, uh, they, they are at record or near record catches for the last three years in a row, I believe, and they're expecting another near record or record return this summer. So everybody's benefiting up there from this natural resource, uh, both, you know, both the lodge and fishing industry and also the commercial fishing industry. It's just an amazing scenario that's going on up there. So speaking of uh, those that benefit from the sockeye, so how exactly are the rainbows capitalizing on this event? So it's interesting. Yeah, like it's not, it's not just the sockeye that support the rainbow. Obviously, um, in our river system, for example, um, we're our river is basically fed by two ex- large lakes: the Nonviannik and the Kukoklik Lake. The sockeye in their life cycle need to spawn above a lake or in a lake so the trout that are eating eggs in our what we call the braided system where we target our rainbows they're feeding on chum eggs and king eggs primarily and pink pink eggs we have enough pinks we're seeing them every year now there's even a which is coming back that's a whole nother story but uh every other year the pinks have a huge run in bristol bay too and uh, this coming summer will be a pink year so those three species really feed our, our rainbows. When you go above the lakes and fish the tributaries to the lakes, it's 100% sockeye that's feeding those rainbow trout. And it's those, those rivers that, that many people have read about over the years, like the Moraine, Funnel Creek, uh, um, the uh, Little Coo, um, up, um, Upper American. It's those rivers that... Um, really benefit from just the sockeye. And, and so Lake Iliamna, for example, um, the largest lake in Alaska, uh, it has all its, all its rainbow fishing is obviously supported by its sockeyes alone. And below that lake in the Quijack River, which has some of the largest rainbows, its, it's chums are a big part of it. Sockeyes are in there too, but all the salmon as a whole really aid in supporting a huge population of native trout. Through eggs, eggs, flesh. flesh, all year long for the most part. Okay. When we get up there in the spring, we're, we're, we can be swinging on a spay rod, um, white leeches, and that represents dead flesh. And these, these, these trout have been accustomed to hitting, you know, drifting white, and it gets very white, uh, you know, pieces of decaying salmon flesh, and it, it, that color works. So on the topic of the sockeyes, um, these images of an angler in a river holding this deep red fish, and sometimes with a like with this green head, it really 
as tempting as an angler, but I fly fish, and I've heard debates over the years. Do sockeye take flies? Can you catch some fly fishing? What's your take? So, when we, don't, the only reason, or when we do target sockeyes, we target them when they're traveling. They're, they're the only species that hits the fresh water and rarely stops to take a, take a breather. They, they hit the river and they keep going and going and going for miles, and they're just in a chain of you know, head to tail, head to tail. Some, you know, they're sometimes in schools of maybe 10 to 15 in slow, slow days, but during the run, you, it'll be just an endless stream of sockeye, maybe five to 15 fish wide coming up the river, following the banks, and they, they follow the banks tight. And when they come over shallow areas, uh, that that creates the best fishing areas for them. Obviously, on a fly rod is when they're they're skirting corners, or they're skirting little gravel bars, and um, unfortunately, they're plankton feeders, so they don't have an instinctive response from their ocean habits to hit, uh, you know, like your typical salmon patterns for Alaska. So they have to be flossed, and I've never I've never seen one. And I've heard people say like maybe there's one in a million that will actually go for a fly but unfortunately the way to catch them when they're chrome bright and very good to eat is by flossing them with your with your line so we call it clothes lining or artful snagging <laughs> and uh it, it's uh we do it with you know like sink tips and um unweighted or weighted flies depending on the depth and the speed of the current and whatnot but once you get the right formula down you can be very successful and uh, the hook will always be in the other opposite side of the mouth that you're standing on, uh, the bank you're standing on. And uh, these fish take off once hooked, uh, explosive like steelhead, like a hot, hot steelhead. I mean, they're airborne, they're cartwheeling. They're really actually fun to catch on the fly. Um, the, the downside is that, yes, they're not really biting the fly. You have to get that magic clothesline into their mouth as they're traveling. And uh, so we don't... Uh, hide the fact that that's what we're trying to do with fly color or selection hooks you know we don't get too scientific about it about the fly that is um, now when they're all red and they're spawning and they've made that transformation they've been in tra- fresh water for a month they're getting ready to spawn you would never think that that red fish with the green head four weeks ago was the total silver bullet that you that you were catching uh, because they go through such a metamorphosis. I mean, even their eyes turn, like, bright yellow. Huh, I didn't know about the eyes. Yeah, it's cool. It's amazing how unrecognizable they are. Yeah, and they're, 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 they get a big hump. The, the males do. The, the kipe, a big kipe. The teeth come yeah. out that weren't there. And uh, it's just an incredible transformation. So when they are like that, they will get protective of their reds, and they will bite at any, you know, things that are coming in front of their face. And... It's at that time when they're spawning, we're targeting the rainbows. You don't want to catch them to eat because they're far past table fare. The only thing that likes to eat them are the bears and the other wildlife that feed off the fish. So um, they will bite flies when they're they're in that stage of their life cycle. Speaking of humps, um, so you've got all five Pacific species coming through, including the humpies, which are in... uh, even years? Even years, yep. And that's, in Bristol Bay, it's, they say it's the even years due to Novarupta volcano, which I think was 1912. And they say it wiped out an age class of, of humpies. And since they don't have um, the jack or off your 
runs like the other species can. And uh, so all the other species came back in full force, obviously, but the, uh, the humpies are, are the slowest to come back. And I, after being up there for over 20 years, I can say they're coming back for sure on the odd years. Um, there's areas that we, uh, last year, for example, when they're not supposed to be there, where the bank was littered with carcasses of spawned out humpies. So they are coming back, and we always catch some, you know, while we're chum or, or silver fishing on pink flies. Uh, you know, um, as a bycatch kind of thing, not even knowing that they're there. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so for a lot of people, the kings are what draw them there. And yeah. I've seen some incredible fish um, caught up at uh, Angler's Alibi. Um, the kings are your favorite? Kings are definitely. Sorry, sorry, you said yeah, silver's, silver's our favorite. I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to pin a favorite. If I had one to catch on the fly, though, it would be the king. Why is that? Um, they're the most difficult. Um, I, I consider them like the steelhead of the salmon species where um, they're not quite as aggressive. They have aggressive moments, and yes, they will hit like a strip fly. And um, But for the most part, you're fishing a slow swing, and you're just going for that grab, that subtle grab, a subtle take um, from a king that's uh, holding in a, you know, in a deep part of the channel or traveling up through the uh through crossovers in the river or whatnot where they're uh coming in fresh on the tide and if i'm not mistaken over the last few years you've had more people coming up and swinging for them yes it's becoming more and more popular and i love it that's cool yeah and and they're huge there yeah we get them pretty big um the biggest ones we'll see every year we usually see a few 50 pounders in our river system every year but um definitely a lot of in the 40 pound class 30 pound class and the bread, you know, the bulk of the run, though, is probably in that 20, 20 to 25-pound class. That's great. That's perfect, actually. Yeah. Um, and then your favorite of the silvers. Um, I, personally, I think these are one of the coolest to see. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got that real clean look, and the, they get the teeth and, the, mm-hmm. and their crazy mouths and everything, too. Um, they jump. Right? Major jumpers, yes. Cool. So I'm sure that adds to the fun. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, what is it else? What else about silvers do you? Uh, the silvers are. They're just. Uh, they like to hold in water that's a little different than uh, the chums and the pinks. Um, they'll tend to want to be in deeper water, and um, we started a new method by drift drift fishing for them, and it's just such a peaceful way to fish. And obviously, if we get into a big school, we'll drop the anchor and cast from the boat in these deeper sections of the river in the lower tidewater. But um, they're just fun to fish, and, and uh, the day goes by fast. You're catching a lot of fish. They're going airborne. The customers are giggling because they're getting these explosive runs and jumps from the fish. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a really, really cool, cool way to fish for these silvers. And uh, they're they're airborne so like cool. you know who doesn't like an airborne right, fish right right for me i think in addition to the sockeye salmon as one of those iconic images of the bristol bay region i also think of float planes and i think of brown bears um, one thing i've always enjoyed about your videos is the proximity anglers have to these enormous gorgeous uh, bears that are taking full advantage of the the salmon runs as well um, what's the experience you have up there of sharing the water with these creatures uh well the the experience never gets old i'm doing it for over 20 years and every time we're 
we get fairly close to a bear, uh, you know, it definitely uh, the mood gets uh, enhanced for, by all the all the anglers. No one cares about catching fish anymore. Kind of stop, pause, watch the bear uh, do its thing, and move on. And it's just there's no place, very few places in the world, obviously, that you can do this with the brown bears. Get be that close to them, and as long as you give them the respect that's needed, they won't give their you know they're they don't really won't give you much, uh, much of a look, and uh, they're so focused down the salmon as their food source that um, it's just a it's a great relationship. For a lot of people who haven't been to Alaska, I think the state's so big and there's so many areas. Um, a, a question that comes up early on for anglers is about getting there. So how what's getting there like for your area? So. Uh, our guests need to obviously everybody has to fly through Anchorage so no matter where in the world you live you have to go to Anchorage first unless you have your own plane (laughs) and then fly from there to King Salmon that flight from Anchorage is about an hour and ten minutes commercial flight Um, once you're in King Salmon our float plane service will pick you up at the airport um, load you up in the plane and take you into our camp we're about a 30 minute float plane ride from north of King Salmon and uh, it's that travel piece and not being part of the road system, I think that just really makes, separates us from a lot of other places in Alaska that um, most people have heard of or been to. And uh, no roads, no crowds really is a true testament to what makes it a special place. That's great. Um, and you're definitely fully immersed in the, the ecosystem um, with the camp. It's, it's, you're really experiencing Alaska. Exactly. Yeah, we even, uh, obviously we're off the grid, and we, like everybody else, runs our, runs our place off a diesel generator. And unlike a lot of other places, though, we actually shut our generator off at night at 10 o'clock, and we kind of have a curfew. And when you shut that generator off and you can, you can hear the wildlife, you can hear a wolf howl, or you can hear, um, the, you know, the eagle screeching, or you can hear the sandhill cranes chirping, it just really adds to the experience and, you know, it's just a great way to go to sleep. And so just a lot of us uh, anglers also think of gear first when thinking about destinations, too, um, mm-hmm. for better and worse. Right. Um, and with different species up there, um, different types of water, what are your gear recommendations? So um, the, I would say the majority of our, our customer base are, are mainly trout fish in the lower 48. And so... They don't have all the gear that's necessary for an Alaska trip. So we provide everything and have more than enough gear to outfit the camp probably three times over over the years, just keep adding to it, our, our gear base. But uh, the majority uh, of the fishing that you'll do at our place, uh, an eight or nine weight for the salmon, the, the chums, the pinks, the silvers, uh, is a great, great rod to have, eight or nine. Um, the... Rainbow fishing, um, I prefer a seven weight. Um, it'll actually help you land the bigger rainbows a lot easier. But also, when you happen to catch some sockeye salmon by accident, you can also get your rig back yeah, and right. uh, land those too. Um, for the kings, the big daddies, ten or eleven, or maybe even like a, an older light twelve weight for the fly rods. Yeah. And then flies are. Everything from flesh flies and eggs to yeah, all we, sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, we, 
we supply it all, and we don't. <laughs> and one of the things we do at at our lodge is we don't nickel dime the gas. We we supply all the flies, and it's um, because again, who's going to have uh, bright colored pink flies coming right. from that you can really pretty much only use in Alaska? So we we have a we have a lot of flies. Um, the other thing that we got into in the last several years is spay fishing, and uh, I've built up that base of gear too at our camp. Um, so spay rods, seven or an eight weight uh, for your your chum, pink, silver fishing, and then for the for the kings a nine or a ten weight spay rod. That's that's cool. Yeah. So for as long as I've been fly fishing, the conversation about uh, Bristol Bay has always been about what an ecosystem it is, the bears, the salmon, the trout. Um, but now, unfortunately, at, for well over a decade, every conversation almost also talks about, uh, brings in the concerns about pebble mining. Um, and news about that change, it seems to be changing frequently. Um, it changes and it doesn't change. It seems like there's always a threat, but the factors change. Um, so how are things looking now, would you say, with pebble? Well... Unfortunately, with the uh, new administration, the EPA kind of has some different uh, out, uh, ways of handling things, it, it seems, and they've kind of reopened the whole permitting process for the Northern Dynasty Mine, which is a Canadian company, Northern Dynasty Mining Company, excuse me. Um, so there's, we can only hope that the... Uh, you know, the effort with the commercial fishermen, the native tribes, the sport fishermen, the, the uh, I mean, almost every uh, gear manufactured associated to fishing in any way is supporting the effort to uh, oppose the mine from happening. And, I mean, we can only hope that eventually that will prevail. I always say common sense. Um, the open pit mine, the thought of an open pit mine on, on top of the, the watershed that supports the largest wild salmon runs for not only sport fishing but for the commercial fishing as well. Um, it's just uh, it's a common sense kind of question because there hasn't been an open pit mine in the history of mankind that hasn't polluted its water source. So what's going to be different about this open pit mine? And I, I, I like many others, just believe even uh, no matter what, if they try to do it, no matter what kind of uh, engineering would go into it prevent, to prevent any leakage into the water system, it's inevitably, inevitably going to happen. And that's the fear and just can't see any sense in why even trying it. In the long term, there's no way it's... It can never best. be reversed. Exactly. And it's not the best investment. It's, no. It's, it's something that produces every year um, for the ecosystem, for uh, tourism, for the people there. It's too valuable. Um, so it's certainly one we all have to get behind. Absolutely. John, thank you very much. Oh, you're um, welcome. And uh, to check out more from John Perry and Angler's Alibi Alaska, check, uh, head over to anglersalibi.com.